ਦੇ ਦਿਲ ਪਰਦੇਸੀ ਨੂੰ ਤੈਨੂੰ ਨਿਤ ਦਾ ਰੋਣਾ ਪੈ ਜਾਊਗਾ ਨਾਲ ਰੰਜੇ ਤੇ ਜੋਗੀ ਦੇ ਤੈਨੂੰ ਜੋਗਣ ਹੋਣਾ ਪੈ ਜਾਊਗਾ everybody and welcome to Flywheel. Your number one source for everything Frax, DeFi and everything in between. If you want to know what's going on in the world on chain, you've come to the right place. This is DeFi Dave here with Capital K and we are here to help you the harness the power of the Flywheel. And in this edition, we go to a whole different part of the Flywheels in DeFi. We go over to the Uniswap land, so it's with unicorns and pink and capital efficiency and we go to see what's spilling on over there with Arrakis and we have on Cassandra and Squirrel. What a two wonderful intelligent individuals. Uh this was a long conversation and for good reason because we really get deep into the mechanics of Uniswap V3, Arrakis V2 and Palm and you know the intricacies of differences of curve and Uniswap. Kit, thoughts on this one? I actually had a really fun time in the uni universe, you know, uh, the uni universe. Cause I, I feel like I love this type of product and capital efficiency. You know that that's why we went a little bit extra long in this pod too. Mm-hmm. And a little bit extra just, spice. Yeah. Yeah. Extra yeah. spice. I just can't wait for the listeners to kind of chime in here and, yeah. and, and listen to this. It's funny because I call squirrel my timeline doppelganger. Because he he's quite literally like we've had parallel careers doing very similar things. Because like you know he was at MIM at one point. You know we're so close. I'm so close with Frax. He's he's at Arrakis. I was at Gelato. Like he's quite literally my timeline doppelganger. Yeah, and we'll get right into it. And after the show, we have our post game that's down below at our Substack Flywheel output. So make sure you go there, subscribe down there. If you want all the latest updates to Flywheel, make sure you hit that bell button. Subscribe on YouTube. We come out with content on a pretty consistent basis here. So make sure you follow us on Twitter at FlywheelDefi. Join the discussion on Telegram at FlywheelDefi. Follow me on Twitter at DefiDave22. Follow me at 0x capital underscore K. And let's get the flywheel spinning. Do you hold ETH but don't know what to do with it? Want to earn those juicy liquid staking derivative yields but don't know where to start? Well, FraxEath is there for you. FraxEath is Frax's native LSD solution, allowing you to earn boosted yields in multiple ways on your ETH. If you want to get started, go to app.frax.finance and turn your ETH into FraxEath today. GM, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Flywheel. Today we have on Arrakis, the team of Arrakis. We have Squirrel, Head of Growth and Cassandra, the CTO. I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time because I was once part of Arrakis when it was G-Uni. Um, yeah, this is, it's really cool to see like what I consider my baby too, like grow up to see where it is today from, you know, these simple fixed positions, like real simple. And now it's, as you say, it's like you're programming the liquidity computer, which is really cool. So guys, Thank you for coming on. Been really looking forward to this one. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for having us. 
Yeah, and I will preface this one saying um, I am a seed investor in Arrakis. I do have like an interest there. There, I have an interest in Arrakis, so I just want to get that out of the way. <laughs> but now, <laughs> but anyway, we are biased. Advice. We are no, long. No, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyways, let's get this started. Uh, Cassandra, so I got around to watching your Eve Denver speech. It was awesome. Um, and my favorite part about it was how you framed Uniswap V3 as a liquidity computer and how positions are a low-level language. And when you frame it that way, it makes so much more sense why UniV3 has been hard and why we haven't seen so much user adoption. So to start this off, can you go into like what Uniswap V3 is and how you know, Arrakis is, ta is taking the approach of building on top of it? Yeah, totally. So I'll try to, to, I think, not go too deep into the weeds because the first thing I'll say is Unity 3 is really complex. It's definitely a step further complex than what we saw with the first and second versions of Uniswap. And then after that, a lot of you know similar protocols doing small, maybe incremental changes. So this is definitely a leap forward in complexity. So we can't go, you know, you can spend the whole hour just talking about that. Yeah. If you're into it, dive in and look at the actual technical details because it's pretty exciting. Um, so just like going over it briefly, I think the biggest innovation that everybody always talks about, what is V3? V3 is really, UniV3 is about concentrated liquidity, which is um, an idea that only makes sense if you already know a little bit about uh, UniV2 style liquidity provision, right? So this idea that we provide liquidity to a decentralized exchange with 50-50 of two tokens, of some token pair. And then as the price moves, um, like we are always have some of both tokens, but as the price moves, we might have more of one token than, the, uh, than we started with um, and maybe less of another than we started with. And as trading occurs, we earn fees as a liquidity provider, which is to compensate us for this inventory risk we're taking on. So that was UDV2. Um, the main thing was every liquidity provider was the same. They provided liquidity across, uh, you know, infinite prices. And now with concentrated liquidity, the idea was to attack the major inefficiency with this older design, which was that you had to put spread your liquidity across all possible theoretical prices. And that meant that there were, if you're trading between your token pair only happened in a certain band of prices, then... Uh, some of that liquidity is wasted, it's dead capital. It's not capital efficient. So UniV3 said, what if we could allow liquidity providers to provide liquidity in specific price ranges? And so somehow we, instead of, uh, instead of provisioning your capital over the entire price range every time, each liquidity provider can decide which price range they will spread their assets across, or actually more, Importantly, I would say they can use this low-level primitive, right, to provide liquidity in one price band that we call a position. And we're going to pattern all of these positions that many different liquidity providers might place to create the actual liquidity distribution across the entire price range. So you could provide liquidity across the whole price range as a liquidity provider, but now you have these new options of deciding to lop off the ends, which means your inventory will convert faster over um, over this like smaller price band that you chose. And if trading goes outside of your price band on one end, you'll have entirely one token. You'll have converted everything. And you're no longer be a liquidity provider in the market. 
and you won't earn fees anymore. But while you're inside your range, because your capital is being used more efficiently, you earn a higher percentage of the fees. So this was like the main new game, the main new degree of freedom, which was liquidity providers can now express a preference. Each liquidity position is now non-fungible with every other since each position has its own specific bound. So very exciting, really cool model about how you can still efficiently do this on chain. Uh, and how it sort of takes from Uni V2 and splits it in, into a bunch of quantized Uni V2s. Cool things that we won't go too, too deep into, mm -hmm. but like, yeah, that basic new degree of freedom, it's so cool, but they didn't tell us what to do with it. And I think Arrakis <laughs> is all about what is Arrakis. It's trying to figure out how we can actually utilize that in maybe a more sophisticated way than just the first way that might come to mind, which is, okay, I'll pick my price for it, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I want I, yeah. I to take a trip down memory lane, Cassandra, back to 20, the summer of 2021 when G-Uni just started off. Uh, I'm curious, like, what was the approach of G-Uni back then? And then what have you learned since then? And how has it changed? And what lessons you've taken from that to create Arrakis V2 and later Palm? Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. I think we naively saw with GUni, the first idea is still what we're working towards. But I think we naively saw, oh, so if you can pick price ranges to provide liquidity to the decentralized exchange, and by picking the right price range for the current market conditions, you'll earn more fees than other liquidity providers, then it makes sense that it would everybody would benefit from a bot that might adjust your price ranges at all, all over time, right? Adjust price ranges for you to get you the best fees for the current market condition. Um, naively, we thought, oh, maybe we'll just do that and there will be a very simple way like that will pop out, like this is the best way to optimize your single range liquidity provision and we'll just be the automation underneath. And at this time, it was still a project related with gelato automation so we just thought maybe liquidity providers will um will benefit from this automation and probably there's a very simple way to automate your liquidity provision to to optimize it it turns Narrator, out it wasn't so simple <laughs> exactly uh, turns out it's really yeah, I really just, i just wanted to yeah please. like the the crazy thing is right is like everyone in the industry univ3 paper drops and I remember like listening to a bunch of podcasts of like various different people. And they were like, oh, yeah, there's just going to be these dApps built on top that are going to make market making a service. And everyone's going to earn endless amount of yield. And this is going to be super <laughs> endless easy. Yield. And like, <laughs> <Whack me. laughs> <yeah. laughs> right. And like everyone thought that this would just like happen really quickly. And then everyone realized like shit this is hard this is hard wait and you don't just plop and earn money what do you mean it's hard <laughs> exactly and so our first naive the very first GUni experiment which only happened internally in-house when we thought of okay let's let's automate the the adjustment of the ranges was to go really concentrated on uh eat die pair and whenever it went out of rain, swap back to 50-50 and go really concentrated at the new price. And 
again, naively we thought maybe we're geniuses and just <laughs> turn it on and it already works, right? Um, but it turns out that, that aggressively loses funds. Many people have also tried this when you sort of naively first uh, went into Unity 3. So within a week, we knew like, okay, this loses like a lot. Um, so from, <laughs> here, from there, we realized the actual automation part, the adjustment, uh, like high frequency adjustment of these positions is going to be a very complex problem um, and one that's going to take a long time to solve. In the meantime, it turned out that just providing a fungible wrapper to the non-fungible UniV3 position unlocked a lot of use cases. And so in the meantime, these static positions, we found uses for them. But now we realize we needed to create a V2 that could handle the complexity needed to do this much more high-frequency uh, uh liquidity provision strategies and finally we're like at the at the beginning of really putting that into production so yeah 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 it's fascinating yeah because when it started off, like i remember when we were first toying around with g uni um the thing that i realized was the more conservative you are the better you you end up being because you just get not only do you just get more fees, but you just get wrecked less. And the name of the game is to survive. And so many times people are like, oh, let me get these like little concentrated positions. But in reality, the strategy is like, have these like wide ranges. I remember like, you know, 4X the price, 3X the price or 2X up and below the price and just layer them like a sandwich. Um, and that that's what I realized like, oh, that's like the optimal strategy. And then at certain times you can really make a pretty penny um, with like, let's say like a new token launches with 1%. Um, just have like a wide range with that new token paired to ETH and you can just like stack up for a bit, honestly. Yeah, I think there were so many basic learnings you can get by actually just playing around with it that um, like you, you realize the theory and the practice are, are quite different. Things also like yeah. the fee tier, right? The fee tier matters so much yes. in terms yeah. of your earn, yeah. right? Yeah. Each time you change fee tiers, you divide by like three to six X <laughs> what you get per trade. So like often we like we think that those are marginal decisions, but those are huge. And you think maybe the range you pick is really, really important, but it turns out it didn't make it's more the fees the range on the feed here, right? Uh, so, so yeah, what some... I, I think also yeah. also the time frame is like something that mm. hasn't been talked about too much, right? Like if you think about it, when Univ3 launched, I don't remember what the ETH price was, but if you would have put a pretty big range, right? Like say from like 500 to five thousand dollars right for the six month period it would it would have looked like you would have gotten wrecked right because the price just went up only but if you would look at it from a scale of now you'd actually probably be at about the same amount of tokens because the price has come back down and you would have earned those fees so i think like time frame is also a, a lot of the times not really being discussed here yeah yeah and it's a huge deal i think young lambert says it very well which is that every liquidity position should be thought of with like comma the length of time you plan to have this position and without that you don't really have any way to measure the risk of the position at all so it's pretty interesting yeah kit what are you thinking right now um, honestly, I'm getting PTSD because I am one of those naive fools <laughs> that was like, oh, I can go one tick and be the whole volume bar. <laughs> I am the king. 
And then yeah. I realized the more concentrated <laughs> your profitability is, also the more concentrated your IL is. And because you yeah. keep on having to move this IL, well, guess what? It becomes from impermanence to permanence losses every single time I have to move the tick, right? I was yeah. tracking the price like this, and I was just like, this is not working. Uh-uh. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, You're just this spending not... gas. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. It was... It's yeah. like once I, you stop stop thinking in infinity, like with V2, where you can just like set and forget and you have these concentrated bands, then you have to think now like your time is limited in the same way that the positions are limited. I think that's but, a great but it's e yeah, But it's ahead. easier to know whether you're, go you're getting wrecked, right? Like I feel like oh, yeah, with the zero sure. to infinity, <laughs> like – 99% uh, of LPers, I mean, this was also the case, right? In DeFi summer, everyone thought that them and their grandmother should be market makers suddenly. Um, but the thing is with the zero to infinity, like it, it's really difficult to actually understand what is going on, Yeah. right? Um, so of course there's less risk in a sense because you're wider, but in a sense, there's also more risk because probably yeah. people don't even understand like what does zero to infinity really mean? Cassandra, I remember we had coffee several months ago uh, and we were having a conversation and at the end of it, I'm like, you know what? Why do we call them automated market makers? They're really automated market takers. I think you said that or I, I don't know if I said that from like what you were saying, but because you're just like in this LP position, you're just constantly taking. You're like, the, you're constantly taking orders and you are the uninformed flow. Yeah, exactly. All the flow goes through you, informed or uninformed. And that's <laughs> the like, difference, right? Between... I think one of those key differences between the central limit order books dynamic is it's much more difficult just practically, even if you knew how, to like only target certain flow and say, I want that flow mm -hmm. specifically. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and to, to add to, to that specific flow targeting, can we talk about JIT just in time MEV? Because I feel like that was like the natural progression where, you know, Naive users like myself thought I can manually do this and try to beat the machine. And then here comes the machine just crushing me at every corner. Like, how does Arrakis think about MEV uh, in terms of JIT? Yeah, I think JIT's really cool. We are not diving that deep in yet. Um, and I think often it's like very interesting, like, thought experiment and example also it's a really cool example of ending mev in that it's even though it's a sandwich it's not necessarily negative for the trader or for the like participant in the middle of the sandwich mm -hmm. very very different from most other sandwiches which are like very extractive from that trader mm -hmm. right so of course it still extracts from somewhere right the value comes from somewhere where does it come from the other lps in the book right because what you're doing is yep. You are, when you see a really big order, you provide liquidity, but you only provide liquidity for that order to get a large portion of the fees for that order. And then you, you remove. So you're basically not doing the service, which I think is what's desired by a lot of, um, for a lot of, um, liquidity pools, which is to have long-term idle liquidity there to draw from. So if there were downturns or if people want to trade, they can trade. If there are downturns and the liquidation needs to be performed, it can happen, right? In this plumbing of DeFi needs to be there for a token. Um, and that's what people want. They want that there consistently. So this can feel extractive in a different way. It's great for the trader, 
Why? Because now if you inject a lot of liquidity right around the current price to try to take most of the fees, you also give that order better price execution. But it still could be thought of as net extractive in terms of uh, like, yeah, in terms of the fact that you are making the market, but you're not, it's maybe not the really the desired behavior. Someone would prefer to have that liquidity, maybe less of it, but over a longer time, not to just facilitate one trade, the one trade you want to take. Um, so, yeah, I think it's pretty interesting from that like moral question of is it good or is mm -hmm. it bad? Um, but from the actual implementation, uh, so far, we're still not like, I don't think we're yet at the sophistication, at, le at least mm -hmm. at Arrakis, where we need to be thinking about targeting very, very specific transactions like that in order to make a profit as a market maker. I do believe that on decentralized exchanges, there are ways to build better strategies that do involve managing your positions more often and changing them around. But uh, so far, those are still in sort of a multi-block context, not in a context where it's like, we want this position in this block to facilitate this trade and then remove it immediately. Um, right. Uh, and I think... And I mean, the, the market shows this as well, right? Like the market is showing less than 1% is actually JIT. Right. Yeah, uh, that's activity. what uh, Dan Robinson said in his uh, ETCC speech in Paris. Yeah, yeah. Last so, year. and so I think, like, I mean, if it really was that profitable, then the market would show that as well, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The um, reason why I brought that up was because I saw in your ETH Denver speech when you mentioned inventory management, and then I, I kind of went through your guys's Git book, and I was like, oh, that's very interesting that not all of the LP position provision is deployed at once there is you know x percent at whatever price range and then let's say also just so happens that a massive order comes in and you're like oh shit i need to facilitate this then you could tap into that unused inventory use it real quick just so that hey everybody's good i, I took it for us beneficial for the dow because obviously the dow is the most likely the largest you know pol in the pool anyways so they wouldn't be, quote, extracting from too much from the others, right? That they're facilitating that. So that's kind of why I thought of JIT the moment I read inventory management. You know, okay, so I, I think like, oh, that, those that makes a lot of really sense. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think what the, what the schema described there makes a ton of sense and is, is in line with the way we think about how to utilize these vaults and also purposefully sideline funds. I think also it reveals the other reason maybe why JIT isn't that profitable or yet or on certain pairs doesn't happen that often because you also need a way to get out. So you earn these fees, but usually maybe unless you actually have some thesis that makes you long whatever mm -hmm. coin this is, mm. then you might want to return back to stables, right. which basically means you need to arc whatever you're earning on this trade with some other market. And if there's right. no other market, then the JIT's not you don't take really... It. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't do the JIT. Then you're stuck. You're stuck in a JIT. Yeah, you're stuck yeah. Ha just with the first leg of your JIT, and you don't want to hold some, right? Mm -hmm. MEV bots never hold the the shit coins right. that they're, you know, yeah. making ARBs on, right? So Yeah. Now, speaking of flow, I want to talk about toxic flow. And uh, Squirrel, this is for you. I want to get into uh, a few weeks ago, we had a guy named, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. His name's DeFi Cheetah. Uh, and he is definitely more of a... Uh, 
curve guy to say the least. And he had uh, curve lots maxi. of curve maxi, <laughs> lots to say about toxic flow. And even though that Uniswap V3 has the majority of volume, the majority of it is toxic flow. And then on top of that, he said that what curve does well is that it is the pricing center of existence for stable coins. Like for example, we just had the DPEG this weekend. Everybody was looking towards curve to, for like the f final arbitrary answer for it. So squirrel, uh, I know you said you had to look at the interview. What is your response to DeFi cheater? What is your response to toxic flow? What is your response to curve versus Uniswap? I think there's a lot to unpack. Um, Let's do it. But no, I mean, I think like overall, I think the, the thread ores have been heavy on Twitter, <laughs> right? We love to see it. We uh, love to so see heavy. it. <laughs> I was just doing um, my day before this. So heavy. <laughs> just had each better on each plate. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack. Um, I think number one, one thing that DeFi Cheetah mentioned, right, is what he likes about Curve is this aspect of it always being kind of alive, right? Um, that no matter what, no matter when, you can swap, right? Mm -hmm. um, and now I think, or what I would say is Uniswap, if there's a market, then Uniswap will have this market. And if there's no market for it, that just means that there's no activity for it, right? Like, it, it's as simple as that. And so, of course, it's great. I think a, a traditional AMM is absolutely fantastic. Um, but in the end, what really truly matters is best price execution. Like that is as a trader, as an investor, that's what you care about, right? Like you want to go to the place where you get the best price execution and nothing else really matters to you. Like you don't care about the branding. You don't care about whether it's, whether you're toxic flow or whether you're good flow, right? All you want to do is you want to get the coin at the cheapest price possible. Mm -hmm. um, and that to me is what the winning DEX or also centralized exchange is, right? Like why do we go to Binance for most tokens? It's because you're most likely going to get the best price execution there because most of the volume is there. Um, and so I think if a market does not exist, then there's a reason for that market to not exist or to not be alive. Essentially. Can you go into that more? Like into, exist, into like market existing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, with curve, right. Um, with curve V2, you obviously provide liquidity. And then Curve itself decides kind of where to place this liquidity, right? Um, whether it's from, yeah, whatever price it is, right? With UniV3, because of the concentrated liquidity aspect, the LPer has to basically really decide where this liquidity sits, right? There's no automation like at its core in this, right? And so... On UniV3, a market will only exist if people are actually willing to pro provide their tokens or their liquidity at that price. And if no one is willing to provide liquidity at those prices, then there is a clear or probably there's a reason for it, right? Um, and so this is where I kind of disagree in terms of 
this aspect of like Curve is a public good and Uniswap isn't because you need to have liquidity providers there, right, uh, in, in Uniswap to, to actually be able to execute. With Curve, it's basically this, the, the aspect of you need to have people that are providing liquidity, but they cannot pick where they provide the liquidity, right? And so this means that the market is there as like, okay, you can take it, but maybe the person doesn't actually want it, right? And I think this is kind of the, the core difference of like, do we really need an exchange where you can always sell and buy? Yes, for sure, that's beneficial, but it's beneficial to the trader in the end, right? Um, and there's going to be a reason why there is no liquidity if there is no liquidity, right? And so mm. that's where I think that you don't necessarily, like, I don't see why you have to have an exchange where there always is liquidity because for a token that is wanted, there is going to be liquidity, right? Um, so I think that's kind of my view on this aspect of, this model of of the AMM, right? The 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 kind of term that we've used for all DEXs since UniV1, right? Verse, yeah, there's a question whether UniV3 is an AMM, right? An automated market maker, or whether it kind of is on the cusp of that because mm. you obviously need to provide there, right? Um, so that, that's, that's the one thing that I would say in regards to kind of the comparison, right? Of like always having access to a trade. There's a reason if you can't access a trade, why you can't, right? Um, and then on, sorry, Cassandra, I don't know if you wanted to say something there. Only that I think it's also like, if there's liquidity, if the problem that DeFi Cheetah has is that there can be ticks with no liquidity at the current, no liquidity at the current spot price, well, if there's liquidity at a different price, Unity three still works in such a way that you can take liquidity at that other price. You'll just move across all these prices and take nothing until you finally run into the liquidity, which is not very different from on the edges book. of these curve curves, right? Yeah. The moment you start taking the liquidity, the price also flies really fast, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, if the question is really just about should there always be liquidity sprinkled over the entire price range of the market. Um, I don't see why it's bad to give an extra degree of freedom where some markets don't have that. If your market wants that, liquidity providers can provide liquidity this way, but they can also make other further choices. So in terms of that market structure thing, it's just that's what I'd say. Yeah, when you, when, yeah. You when you guys talk about liquidity and prices and where to place this liquidity, it sounds quite similar to market makers and order books. You know, if there isn't, you know, uh, liquidity at a certain price, it's because it's for, there's a reason for that because no one wants to buy it at that price. It's simple supply and demand. And so this is where you see, you know, both AMMs or whatever you would consider Uniswap V3 and clubs like converge. Yeah, exactly. Mm, exactly. Yeah. And I think this is also where like this aspect of the toxic order flow, right? Um, mm -hmm. the, the absolute hype topic of Twitter. Uh, everyone loves it. And I think what one thing that a lot of people keep forgetting and, and don't talk about. And I think that DeFi Cheetah also do, doesn't really talk about this, um, is this aspect of you don't actually know 
what the LPer is doing, right? Like we're, when you do these toxic order flow analysis, you're just viewing this aspect of, okay, they're trying to make money with fees, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I personally, and kind of this is how I got into LPing with UniV3, is I used and still use UniV3 to DCA in or DCA out of tokens, right? And so my liquidity is sitting across a certain price range, single-sided, right? And if the price moves, like, let's say I'm trying to sell, right? If the price moves up, then I'm getting impermanent loss as we love to talk about it, right? But in the end, for me, it's not impermanent loss, it's impermanent gain because impermanent I want gain. to sell the because I want to sell the asset. Right. Yeah. And so uh, on these analysis for toxic order flow, it looks like I am constantly taking toxic order flow, right? And I've got huge impermanent loss, but that's actually what I wanted. And so yeah. I think it's it's very difficult to basically, and I'm not saying that the majority of users or LPs necessarily are this, right? All mm-hmm. I'm saying is that I think the analysis is very, very difficult to do in terms of what was the aim of the LP or actually, right? Yeah. Um, and this is where I have a bit of an issue in terms of these kind of high level toxic order flow um, discussions, which I think are absolutely valid, right? But I think we need to look at UniV3 as being more of a central limit order book um, and people also using it like that, right? Yeah. And I think over time, as people understand UniV3 more, they're going to use it more and more like this. I think right? it comes down to the linguistics of liquidity providing on decentralized exchanges has not evolved to catch up with what's actually happening. Because we all we have to describe this action is toxic order flow, but if you want the opposite to ha- happen, you know you just what's the op- what's the antonym for toxic like healthy order flow, literally healthy order flow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, good flow, um, yeah, exactly. good flow. Let's good good flow. Let's yeah. let's steal they man this, this argument a bit. Yeah, uh, they even say uninformed. Is what I find funny is good yeah. flow. Good flow. Just, <laughs> uninformed. That's, that's kind of dark. <laughs> <laughs> it's all an information game uh-huh. in the end. <laughs> yeah, okay, right. what were you going to say? I said, let's let's try to steel man this on, on both sides a little bit, right? Because mm-hmm. I feel like we, we all could use some uh, intellectual honesty. Like, I wanted to go back to what Squirrel's example was of like, hey, setting a basically a limit order to sell, right? But assuming that you did get hit through your whole range, like you are effectively a, a trader at that point. You're not really an LP because, well, you set a limit order, you're trying to get out. So you also want the best price to be executed, right? You want to be able to sell at the highest price. But because of how Uniswap just receives the toxic flow or toxic flow, you would just get the least optimal price to execute on. I think that was the point that, you know, so I think was trying to put in. I wouldn't a hundred percent agree with this, right? So if I decide to sell, like I'm not, so again, I think we need to talk about timeframes here, right? But if I want to sell, if you would have told me this five years ago, then I would have set 10 different limit orders around a certain price, right? Um, hopefully close to the, where the top was. Yes. 
Um, but most of the time this didn't happen, right? But I would set lots of different limit orders and then those limit orders will get hit and maybe the price just drives through those, right? Now, if I set a LP position, all this is, is instead of setting 10 limit orders, it's setting one order across a price range. And so I'm averaging out, right? And so in this situation, for me, it's not about the, the best price because it's about averaging out across this price range. That's what I've decided to do, like you in a limit picked, order. You're getting the price exactly the one you pick, the price you pick when you pick your price range. Plus maybe something extra with fees, but you don't even care, right? What you said is I want my limit order to execute at this price. And nobody says to a limit order setter, hey, did you know it pumped way past your limit order? And that means you took impermanent loss? No, my limit order was filled. Maybe I didn't time the market as well as someone else, but I got exactly what I thought, not a worse price than I expected. I got the price that I could algorithmically set, which is just the geometric mean of the bottom and top price of my range. Once I go all the way across it, plus any fees again, plus some little extra. Um, so yeah, I think that's very important is, yeah, you could get a better, what are we measuring against? And this is, I mean, last thing, this is technically an LP. You are providing liquidity, but it's maybe shouldn't be thought of as a market, right? This is a person with a limit order, not a market right. maker. So they are in thinking about their flow. They don't care who, a limit order doesn't care who fills it, toxic or not. A market maker right. who is going to fill orders on both directions all the time, they care about which flow they're taking um, and, and about this like flow dynamic. But a, but a limit order setter doesn't. And you can express both types of opinions as an LP in Uniswap. So that's the thing where it's very important always to say, well, yeah, what is the setting of the LP? Are we talking about them as a market maker? Then these analyses might make a ton of sense, but there are other kinds of activities happening on the uh, liquidity computer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this, this is how I would just like overall view the, and I mean, I haven't done any like proper research on this, but I think any kind of DeFi person that has an understanding of Uni V3 and uses Uni V3 LP positions, like they're thinking about, okay, if it hits above this price, then my LP position is fully ETH. If it hits below this price, my LP position is going to be 100% USDT, right? Um, or whatever it is. And so based on like, that's how they're thinking through it. Um, and so it is like a trader, right? Or investor rather, right? Rather than like a market maker. Right. Yeah, this is where linguistics come in. Cause like you said, it's not like they're automated market makers in certain situations are actually traders. And so I'm curious on how the whole lexicon evolves as, you know, Uniswap V3 evolves and as Arrakis gets built. And I think now we've established a solid foundation uh, for Uniswap V3 and the liquidity computer. And now I want to get to the next level of the liquidity computer, Arrakis V2. Uh, Cassandra, can you give like an overview of what Arrakis V2 is, how it works and, you know, how people can build on top of it? Yeah, yeah and I awesome. think Cassandra, the important part, remember to use market uh -huh. maker, not LP or <laughs> uh -huh. sure. what we just talked about. <laughs> yes. 
Exactly. So I think Rackets Me Too is a lot about focusing on the kind of LP who approaches the market like a market maker, though actually you can utilize it for all kinds of LPing activities on, on Unity 3 as well. Um, but to go from a technical perspective for a second, right, there is this idea that we have a single position, which uh, in my talk, right, I really tried to, to say that this is also a really low level thing because you can distribute your liquidity by patterning these positions. By taking one position from, uh, let's say, I provide liquidity from $2,000 ETH to $5,000 ETH, right? It's entirely out of range right now, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. But then I can also provide more liquidity from uh, $2,000 to $3,000. And so I still am only will only be providing liquidity between two and $5,000, but now with a special distribution where I'm weighting it more, where I think, you know, I, I think there's going to be more price action in 2000 to 3000. So I want to put more liquidity at those prices. And so you can actually create the liquidity distribution you want as a single um, liquidity provider or as a market maker in the market um, by patterning these low level positions. Where? And yeah, and it might make a lot of sense uh, for different reasons, right? You can think, hey, I think over the next year, the price will most likely be here in the middle. But I also think, you know, I want to provide on the tails as well. So I'm going to pick a normal distribution around a certain average price. Okay, how do you create that? Well, you can stack a bunch of positions on top of each other to create this norm, to create something kind of like that norm. So you can basically with rectangles approximate any curve you like, kind of like in calculus, if any of you took single variable calculus. So rack is V2 is basically a framework to allow you to do this much easier than trying to manage a bunch of individual Uniswap V3 NFTs. It's both gas expensive and uh, it's also complex because now you, my real position, right, is this normal distribution on some, uh, on some token pair, but I have to track each each little rectangle separately, its own NFT, each of them earn their own fees and like individually manage each of them. Uh, and it would be much nicer if I just had a nice sort of a middleware, a smart contract extraction that allowed me to operate on bundles of UniV3 positions at a time. So at its core, on a technical level, this is all Arrakis V2 core is. It's just a smart contract middleware for interacting with UniV3 with a token pair that allows you to interact in a batched way with a bundle of positions. And so for, yep. yeah, for Ruckus V2, is it, you know, cause Uniswap V3, it's, I get NFTs in my address. Is it like a, is it a separate smart contract? Is it a proxy contract? Like what's the structure of it? Yeah, you, you can think of it as a proxy contract. So each and every Arrakis V2 vault, so they're technically vaults, but um, each vault um, is an ERC-20. So it's a, it's a fungible token. However, you can utilize a vault in such a way that only I can mint it. So only I hold the token. And in that way, you can, it sort of defaults back to like a proxy wallet. Because if there's only one person who can mint and burn these ERC-20s, minting and burning the ERC-20 is just the way to add and remove uh, funds into this vault. And in fact, you can even go around it and just send tokens directly to the vault contract 
It doesn't matter because you own the whole supply of the RC20. And if you mm. burn it, you get all the tokens back. So, so it can be used in different settings, but fundamentally it's this ERC20 wrapper around a bundle of UniV3 positions on a certain token pair. And even cooler, on that token pair, we don't say per fee tier. So it can be cross fee tier. You could have positions on USDC Ooh, wow. on the 1% fee tier and another one on the 0.3%. Um, so maybe you have some strategy with which prices you'd, you'd want to take more fees on the trades for, and you could express that with Arrakis V2. So the Arrakis V2 core is this ERC20 abstraction around a bundle of UniV3 positions where each vault is only for a certain token pair. And you can create as many vaults as you want for the same token pairs over and over. Um, and finally, they can have this private setting where you use it just by yourself as a way to manage your own private liquidity. Or what's cool is they also can have a public setting. And in this way, it's more like how you probably remember all of the Arrakis V1 works, which is everybody can provide liquidity to the same vault. They will all... the the vault will conform to some strategy that a manager smart contract can uh, be set. So one very cool thing, again, if you're using it by yourself, all these roles are the same. So you're, you can manage your own vault if you like, and thus it's just a proxy wallet for you to interact with. But you can also set an external manager. So only you can add or remove liquidity from the vault, but the manager can reposition liquidity in UniV3 move it back from the vault to UniV3 or from UniV3 to the vault. Um, and you can specify exactly under what conditions the manager can do this with the manager smart contract. So you get all this suite of possible uses, but, um, but yeah, at, at its core, it was all about finding a way to bundle a bunch of UniV3 positions and interact with them together. Bundle. And so is there a front-facing wow. interface um, that allows me to do all this stuff? Today, not at all, which is pretty interesting. So, so yeah, it's like a freight, it's this infrastructural framework is what we're talking about now, mm, the core. Okay. And now what products, because there's no fees on top either. So if you just want to utilize mm. vanilla Arrakis V2 infra, you won't pay any fee to Arrakis on top of the fees you are. There's no fees, everyone. No fees for Arrakis. Neutral. Just Arrakis. Mm -hmm. Neutral, neutral liquidity management infrastructure. A true so, public good. Exactly. You can build on it however you like. Now, on top of that, you can build products, and we are building a product at Arrakis on top of that, and we'll build more as well. But others can, as, can do this as well, so that's the cool public good side of it. But what we're building on top, the first thing is this Arrakis Palm product, which is a way to help protocols who have treasuries or tokens they want to use for liquidity provision for one reason or another, or maybe you're just a person who wants to do this as well, it's also possible. But the idea is to use it in this private vault setting, Arrakis V2 in a private vault setting, where you simply pass the manager over to a specific strategy. And you can say what's, you can pass specific parameters to that strategy, and then that strategy will automatically be run on your behalf by this automated manager smart contract. And for that, when you're the manager, you can also specify like a manager fee. So like there, there, there are fees for that service. So there we're building on top of Arrakis to have something more public faith, uh, building on top of Arrakis V2 to have a product that's public facing that might earn something. Um, 
But that's how we're just in that way. Arrakis is a user of this Arrakis V2 neutral infrastructure. And if you wanted, you could create your own system of liquidity management or automated liquidity management on top of this and take your own fees. So, uh, yeah, I think we can talk more about what this protocol one is, but that's one possible product on top. Other ones will eventually be like public vaults as well. So far with V2, we haven't done that. So that's why there's not a UI I can point you to and a place mm. where you can just ape mm. in today on V2. Of course, you can still use all of our V1 vaults and go to beta.arrakis.finance, beta check all the stuff out there. But with V2, once there are public vaults, there will be a way for like everyone to, to participate. But we're already utilizing V2 in this like customer relationship with uh, protocol treasuries helping them manage their inventories at scale on UniV3 and manage the liquidity for the tokens they care about. I, I love so, the evolution from Gelato, just neutral automation infrastructure to Arrakis, which is this liquidity management automation infrastructure. And now you have Palm, which is built on top of it. And it's just, you see this evolution of all these products and how they fit in with each other and work with each other. Yeah. Totally. yeah. Um, go ahead. I don't know if I'm so excited because it's 7 a.m. and I'm too espresso deep already, or <laughs> am I just so excited about the future of France right now? But like Cassandra, like I had a million questions running. I, I'm still stuck on: is it one vault, one band, or is it one vault, multiple bands inside? It's one vault, multiple bands. So one vault. If you own a portion of that e one vault, one ERC-20, whatever portion of that ERC-20 token supply you own is a proportion of all the possible, all the bands inside wow. of that. And only the manager can add or remove bands. Okay, second question. I'm gonna get to the manager bit because that's, that's really nice. Uh, second question on top of that. For the idle capital that is just chilling in like the treasury wallet, ready to be, you know, provisioned to be LP'd, but not yet deployed. Is that also resting in the vaults or is it resting in, you know, God, so, okay. So if it's resting in the vault, then it's part of the vault. So like, for instance, if we were, if it was a public vault and both you and I were providing liquidity to it and I own 50% of the token supply and you own 50%. We own 50% of all the tokens which are either in any of the Uniswap positions associated with that vault or tokens sitting on the side inside the vault, idle in the vault. So, and all of that makes up the whole vault's total holdings. And each holder of an ERC-20 token holds a proportional amount of that total supply of those tokens. And wow. the idle, the idle capital that is not inside of the market could, if you build some nice Rapp functionalities or wrappers, you can use the idle capital that is not required in the market at one point in lending markets to arbitrage, to leverage up, to hedge, whatever it is. Yeah. When you guys talk Squirrel. about, oh, wait, no, kid, go ahead. Hey, I just want to say, Squirrel is, is a man after my heart right there. He knew I was going to go to the capital efficiency bit because yeah, I was just like, absolutely. if the capital is just idle chilling, it should be way out there doing some work, you know? 
And yeah. I, I love this. And Dave, before I finish, can I add this one question about the manager bit? Can there mm-hmm. be multiple managers within the same vault and you allocate like for this manager, you know, he's managing my idle capital. I only want to give him say like, you know, up to 10% because I want to make sure I have capital ready at all times. And then for these other three LP, Univ3 LP managers, I want to give them like a, a third each. So the 30, 30, 30, so that they can manage uh, whatever they see fit for me in my pool. Is that possible? So it could totally be possible. The cool thing is we built the whole system very modular so that we could reuse it in a bunch of different ways. And so because of that, the manager from this core perspective, the manager is just an account, but the account could be a smart contract. And Mm -hmm. in fact, it always should be because the basic manager functionality, unless it's like a private vault and thus it's all your money, if you allow them to interact with the low-level manager functionalities, they have a lot of control over parameters that maybe you would want to check. So, right, all and where the rack is palm in general, always the manager is actually some manager smart contract, where now you can define a bunch of logic that happens that basically puts requirements on how the manager can manage the fund. And so there you could be infinitely expressive and you could, this manager smart contract could say, okay, these accounts can call it, but only utilizing these amounts and so forth. So like you could get as complicated as you want, but now you're kind of one of these builders on top of Arrakis. You're, you're, you're utilizing the infrastructure to build it out. Um, yeah. yeah. When you guys talk about, you know, vaults with different strategies and potentially putting it in different lending protocols, this and that. At this point, it kind of sounds quite similar to Yearn. And it kind of makes me think that do all the are, are all these vaults converging on the same structure in the same way all stable coins are converging on the same structure? You guys just, you know, specialize in Uniswap V3 management to start off with. And, you know, Yearn started off with curve, quite literally. So you guys are kind of, I see this like dialect like this, I mean, not dialect, this duality, yeah, 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 <laughs> duality yeah. between the two. So I guess like, how, how do you guys like view yourselves in comparison to Yearn? And like, do you guys feel like you're converging on the same structure in a way? So, yeah, I think what's very different or the one important difference here is like, you could utilize Arrakis V2 vaults to make Yearn-like products, which interact with multiple protocols. But the vault itself can't do this already. So in that way, our vaults are fundamentally different than Yearn. An Arrakis Mm. vault by itself, without wrapping it up and making another smart contract, which entirely controls the vault and thus can utilize the idle funds from that outer smart contract to interact with other protocols. That is like a Yearn product. And that could be built and might be built by us. And then we'd be more like Yearn. But, But just from a technical level, Arrakis V2 by itself is really directly coupled only with Unity 3 and the fun sitting uh, on the side until you you build something around this product, the fun sitting on the side are right. So if they're if they're okay. sitting in the alt contract, they can't you can't zap them to another protocol. So you basically need to build like another Russian doll on top of Arrakis. Exactly. Too. But it can still okay. be very <laughs> useful. Because mm-hmm. the Univ3 leg, you now have a great way to have these bundles of Univ3 positions, which might be much easier to kind of handle from your outer Russian doll here than trying yes. to the whole rebuild all of Arrakis every time for each of these products. Yeah, and, and I think like in the end, like where the comparison obviously stems is uh, all of this is trading infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Yearn has 
focused it on kind of this generalized like strategies, right, for yield, while we're just focusing it on market making, but obviously, like market making in the end is trading. So you can use it for other things as well. But our for full focus is market making in the end. Yeah, you can basically, if I'm a yearn strategist, in theory, I could just set up an Arrakis V2 position, you know, with my idle capital in yearn. So that's where like the bigger Russian. So there, there you have some money Legos, folks. <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. Like yeah. yearn is a great possible user of Arrakis. And we might use Arrakis that way too. But Arrakis V2 is more like this, purely this uni V3 middleware. Right. And then they're like end application, right? So the moment you said Uniswap is the programmable uh, uh, liquidity computer, it just immediately made me think of like, then liquidity dApps are going to flourish all over this, right? But because of how low level Uniswap is, it needs this middle layer. And that's where Arrakis come in. And the the moment you, you kind of brought up like uh, these, these strategies, I was thinking very yearn-like, like, is there going to be like, an a la carte menu almost of like uni v3 strategies that like a new user can just pick because obviously some folks are just not that sophisticated and they just they go to yearn for a reason right and right. set it and forget it is like such a, a thing um like is arrakis going to build any sort of initial strategy templates or anything like that yeah we're totally totally working on it and I think how to how to make this public facing and productize it and allow a user an easy way to interact with it is still totally forthcoming. Mm -hmm. But in a sense, the infra is already there with Arrakis Palm, wherein technically permissionlessly someone could open a Palm Vault for a certain token pair with a certain set of strategy parameters and then fund the gas tank and this strategy will automatically run whatever the and they have some strategy flavors that they can pick from, which are the ones that the Palm manager served. So like there's already some really basic info there. If you were mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, very tech minded and willing to dive in the right. low level yourself. Um, but I think eventually where we want to see this from a more product perspective is, yeah, something that doesn't even have a UI right now. And also it's, it's really targeted more specifically for like protocols and treasuries. So I see more um, like a future where, yeah, for major strategy types, there are these public vaults that you can basically pledge your, right. pledge your tokens to, and you'll conform to the same strategy as all the others in that same vault. But this strategy is well-defined and you know that it's like this strategy type and see the metrics and past performance. And it's yeah. all very trustless, but yeah, you have this suite of like classical LPing strategies that might mm -hmm. you might want to try that are just at your disposal. And as well as that, some way to, if you go to the next level, be more fine-grained and say, okay, I want to have my own private vault that will run sort of like this strategy, but with my custom parameters, and I'll pay the automated bot to, to automate this for me, and that you'd also have a nice UI to basically plug and play to have your own personal strategy. So... Those are far away, but eventually I would love to see this, to see this info there. Yeah, I, I was just, I was just about to say, I don't want to crash the party, but like these things are like the, the, the grander vision, right? And right now, really the first product Palm, what it is right now is 
solving a problem for protocols where they currently do not have a capital efficient and cost effective way to actually get deep liquidity, right? Like this was after, after like thinking about V2, we went on a retreat outside of Paris before ECC last year and basically said like, what actually really is the core problem the protocols have with deep liquidity, right? And that's where this aspect of like trustless market making really came in because we were like the core problem really comes from the inventory problem, right? Mm -hmm. Where the inventory problem is the problem of protocols having a ton of governance tokens, but not enough of their base assets, right? And if they have base, so base assets being E3 SEC, which you obviously pair your governance token with. And if they don't have, if they have base assets, they want to use those for expenses or whatever it is, right? And so this is why protocols have so far had to do liquidity mining because they couldn't actually market make their own markets, right? And so that is then when Palm was born because Palm is kind of a two-phased process where phase one is a protocol can provide 90% governance tokens and 10% base assets or 99% governance tokens and 1% base asset. And through market making, we can accumulate more base asset until a 50-50 is reached asset composition, right? And then you have equal and buy selling power, meaning that the price impact on the sell side and the buy side is the same. And that's what you want as a protocol, right? And then you have active market making fully automated through Palm, um, where you're no longer spending on liquidity mining, where you no longer have to worry about kind of not having super deep liquidity. And that is what Palm is today. And that's what that product is today on top of this V2 infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into um, who's using Palm today and what the results have been. So you guys have launched. Um, I believe you're working with the gel token and Quenta um, testing it out. Like, what have you seen? What are the results? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so really cool. I think Please. it's it's a it's been more than more than those. We now have. Those. Oh, you got a few. 11. Let's hear it. 11. We now we have 11 protocols currently using Palm. Um, and we, so we launched in January uh, 11 protocols right now. Um, and yeah, I mean, even since January, we've seen some crazy, crazy price uh, activity, right? Um, and so it's been really good to see that we're still surviving and we're still market making. Tokens still are thriving. still liquid, still, still liquid. thriving, still growing. <laughs> exactly. Um, and yeah, Cassandra, feel free to top. In yeah. In terms of kind well, of I think one really stuff. interesting thing that it call it's a callback to what you said earlier, but it's, this time frame thing is so important again for just like anecdotal LPing stuff, right? It's you, you. We were excited to see all this volatility recently because you don't really know if your market making strategies are good. Until you weathered a little <laughs> bit of all yeah. Yes. Without that, yeah, all market making strategies are good if it's signed. <laughs> and then Univ3 is great. And you actually can put money in very concentrated ticks and it'll go awesome. But, you know, the time frame is what matters. And so finding out if it still works in the tougher moments is really what 
all of the actual, the real APR you might see as a liquidity provider is about how many times are you going to have those kind of moments and how are you going to weather them? And they may not be winning for you, but they can't be catastrophic losses. Again, if you want to actually make a consistent return over time. That's yeah. Smart. So I yeah, guess, and I, I go ahead. Just just to quickly dive in a bit, like so uh, on both the gel and the Quenta side, which are ones that we've spoken about publicly, we're going to release some more kind of case studies and all of this on on how Palm has performed and everything. Um, but in both cases, we've accumulated more base assets um, and have reached a 50-50 asset composition and could now basically deepen the market even more on both the buy and sell side, right? Because obviously when you have more governance tokens than base assets, that means that if you want to sell the governance token, there's more price impact versus when you want to buy it, right? Um, which is fine. And then at 50-50, you have the same amount. And so the performance in terms of the capital efficiency has been really good. Um, also in terms of the inventory management, right? We're not putting 100% of the capital in. So Gelato and Quenta, I think both provided around seven to $800,000 worth of both governance, to like together, governance token and base assets. Um, and we only take a fraction of that in the market, right? At one point in time. And so by doing this, you're not risking all of the capital in comparison to like what people usually think. And especially with these X times Y equals K, you're providing like $3 million in the market, which is active, right? It's active in, from zero to infinity. And here we're just taking small percentages and that's what you're essentially risking in terms of using to buy or using to sell. Um, and so this has worked really well. And I think the, we've got a few Twitter posts, uh, explaining like how it's performed. I think one of the most interesting ones is, uh, when base was announced, gelato was one of the, um, launch partners and within like, I think half an hour, an hour, that thing pumped by, by 50%, right? Um, I know you love that, Dave. <laughs> um, and so the, yes. the really cool, the really cool part was that without any, any inter intervention, right? Uh, the Palm strategy basically didn't immediately put ETH right below the, below the price at a 50% pump, but it actually waited because it said if it pumped 50% within an hour, the likelihood of it coming back is there right and so why kind of provide that wow. buy flow right and here we can talk about toxic flow right um but why take mm. that toxic flow after a 50 percent pump right let's wait see what happens and then place it's, the orders don't skate to where the puck is skate to where the puck is going don't swim exactly. to where the liquidity is swim to where the liquidity is going yeah <laughs> i like it, that it was very cool in this moment to see that we hit basically like, yeah, there's in terms of how this palm strategy works, right? There's all this logic in the code logic for moments of very high volatility like we had there, but it had never been accessed sort of in production yet. And we saw it work in the way we expected. And that was, that was very exciting. Isn't that so and, nice? You build something that works in the way you expected. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, 
I wanted to get a little bit. So two questions. When I first read about how you could do a composition of like 90 and 10 with the governance and the base asset, first thought that came to my mind was like, oh, it's kind of like a an, an LBP, you know, uh, on balancer where you could just set it and then people can come in, except there's no time, right? It's just it's just a pool and, and it'll just run. I was like, oh, that's that's quite clever. And I, I know balancer generates, I think, a, a good size of revenue from using this uh, their LBP product, whereas you guys are kind of giving it for free, right? So I, th- <laughs> I think that that's pretty well, cool. There is, like, again, with the Palm product, what's nice is that we can also have a funding structure. So, like, in this case, yeah, there's all this infrastructure for the automated management, and there's the creation of the strategy type template, which then you can pass your parameters to, and those are constantly improving and getting more strategies. And so for being a Palm user, there is some value coming from Arrakis and like we can take fees for that and it's possible via the protocol. So we're not totally getting and we do. Away. Yeah. And we yeah, do. take. So with, oh, got it. With, got with, it. Okay. Yeah. With, with Palm, we do take fees. Um, so there is like, there is a 1% management fee on the AUM uh, over a yearly period. And then we take uh, half of the trading fees that the pool generates. Um, but so in regards to like this balancer comparison, I think the main difference here is that I see the comparison. We talked about this when we came up with the idea, but I think there is a very big difference in the sense that we pocket base asset based on certain price increases, right? And so that can be based on mean reversions or whatever it is. And you can, the protocol could, for example, say, we don't want to sell the governance token below price X, right? And so in that's like an LBP is more of like just constantly kind of keeps on going until a certain Mm -hmm. end date. And this is more like let's DCA based on the price volatility. Does that make sense? Mm. I think. So, I mean, yeah. Go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, please. My confusion is is that you still need other folks to come in to this pool, right? To give you the base assets to pick up the governance tokens. So that's how you know the protocol effectively quote unquote DCA into like selling, right? It's effectively a bunch of limit sell orders. If you, if you were to just to envision that a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. and then like, so in, in the protocols end, I totally get it. Right. It, it's a DCA machine for them on the, the user end. I feel for the regular retail user, this seems and feels just like an LBP that has no time limit and, and no like fixed price point at the end where you, there's the, the target price point per se. Yeah. So definitely similar, definitely similar, but I would just say the main difference, right. Is that it. LBP, you know, will function exactly in one, like with a very, very specific, mm-hmm. very algorithmic set of rules. Whereas the Palm strategy is a bit more of a black box for you as a user, right? You don't know what this strategy, right, which right. is, you know, the rebalances are go on chain, but you don't know exactly when they're going to be executed and exactly at what price points and how much liquidity will move into each price bucket. So I think that's a major difference, right? There's more degrees. Oh, of yeah. And uh, th- the other big difference also being right with the LBP, 
there is only one market activity, right? And that's mm -hmm. people basically participating in, in the LBP, right. Right? right? And so they are basically buying the token at a certain time, right? And with Palm, you have buyers and sellers active, right? And buyers and sellers also active in regards to LPing, right? Because we're not the only ones that are in, in, in mm. the market, right? We're not the only ones market making or LPing, right? But anybody could be. And at the same time, if someone's selling, someone else could be buying, meaning that maybe we don't actually, does that make sense? Yeah. Like, yeah, and yeah. the LBP, There's... right, is just purely this aspect of this curve. Yeah. Uh, where people are buying buying the token. Yes, makes sense. And then let's let's switch gears real quick and double click onto Gel and Gwenta. Like I feel every token probably has their own idiosyncratic ranges or just the way they trade, right? They all have their own volatility. So did you guys do any kind of back testing before you kind of set up the parameters and, and like for 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 Gel and Gwenta? Because definitely, you know, we love to see it when you build something you plan for it and it works out exactly as planned but let, let's dig in a little bit deeper and how that planning process went like you know how what made you yes. guys so successful there so it definitely involves a lot of back testing right this is how we can and still the, the past doesn't look like the future always so it, there are still lots of ways in which there's a lot of unknowns about mm -hmm. how it will look in reality and that's why it's nice to see the confirmation of ones that are that are working well mm -hmm. but yeah without trying to fly completely blind without any back testing would be infinitely more difficult um so we really focus a lot especially once so like there was this long phase where we were working on all of this infrastructure right the smart what we think of as the smart contract and then hooking those smart contracts up to this palm smart contracts which can be called by this automated network which will be running some some back-end kinds of code, which are know about when to actually do these rebalances based on what the parameters, the different things said. So all of that infrastructure work, once it was done, huge work, but now it's like we're in a phase where it's almost entirely focused on the back-testing component because, um, because now we, we can express any strategy we like. The hard part is now do expressing the right ones right. and helping protocols figure out the right parameters to set to these strategies so that it's actually effective. And the only way to do this is to do a lot of modeling. And we'd still like right. to get way better. But uh, for now, we mostly run on historical data, but we'll run like full simulations where basically you'll test a, a strategy with a set of parameters in such a way that you'll simulate the entire history of all the swaps and all the mints and burns of all the other participants, but inject, um, basically constantly run the strategy code alongside of this and inject the strategies, you know, choices at every given moment in like an ideal setting where you can be behind any trend, right behind and right in front of any transaction you like, um, and then check out the results and see how it performs, performs versus fold and also how the inventory looked over time based on those parameters, and then keep trying over and over mm -hmm. again, different parameters. Uh, and this is like the current process. Okay. I have a question, guys. Um, what are some risks associated with using Palm and how do you guys work to mitigate those risks? Yeah, cute, great question. I think the biggest 
risk. Um, so there's definitely risks as a, as a market maker. Inventory risk is something we've been talking about a lot, right? Or impermanent loss risk, I guess you can say too. But the but impermanent loss is the wrong word, right? Because if we're doing all these active positions going in and out, they always become permanent once you remove something and then put it back yeah. in. So it's like so, a super position before you make the trade. Also yeah, permanent so, gain. Yeah, and you can take permanent gains we as go. well. Yeah. Um, and you really can, which like, which is if you think about setting two limit orders on two sides of Uniswap and filling one and pulling it out and then filling the other and pulling it out, you just made a permanent gain. You just captured a spread <laughs> across the market for sure. No ways, no way anybody can turn it around and write a thread where you did it. You made it, right? <laughs> I wish oh, I wish I could. Threaders, like, right. where are you at? Where you're, I, wish like, more. <laughs> I, I, I just imagine like writing my intention like I'm going to set a position, write my position. I'm trying to do this impermanent gain. And when it happens, I just imagine Ari sort of saying, you have an impermanent gain. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you're a male. Got gain. Yeah. And then Squirrel comes, healthy, flow, engage. <laughs> really gamify it, guys. That's a fun UI right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. These are great UI ideas. Yeah. Um, I just, uh, let me quickly call the designer up. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think it, it's, it's with these, the, the risk with your inventory is huge. You can lose money, mm -hmm. right? You can lose money as in you could end up mm -hmm. with less of both tokens if the strategy is not tuned in a way that's amenable to the market. Um, so like that's a huge risk no matter what. And then on top of that, I would say there's definitely some some kind of risk in terms of the trust of this automated management mechanic, right? So you need to these automated execution actually has to occur and occur given uh, uh, with the parameters that are passed there that make sense, right? So like um, basically you can define as tightly as you'd like in the manager smart contract where the manager can provide liquidity. But that also limits their ability to be expressive in their strategy. So there's a trade-off here where if you allow the manager to be very expressive in the strategy, you also put some trust that they're not going to use that expressiveness to somehow run a really bad strategy you really didn't like. Um, again, uh, there's sort of this agreement that the, that the strategy, the transactions that will be run by the manager will be exactly the strategy that you signed up for with the parameters that you passed. But there's still some sort of uh, potential risks involved there that this actually occurs, right? You're not in charge of that execution. So you have the risk that this execution doesn't occur in the exact way that you were hoping. Um, this one is more minimal, I would say, like those trust assumptions, I think, especially from like a project to project point of view are not so bad. So the, the much bigger one is right that, okay, you don't, you don't think the manager will mismanage in a directly malicious way. Um, and it's pretty easy to protect against that and feel comfortable that that's not going to happen. But the management that we did agree upon, which is exactly what's in the strategy in which what is being executed could still be a strategy that loses you money. So yeah, those right. are the two risks. And so I know something we talked about using before to mitigate risk um, for impermanent loss and whatnot is options and you know maybe using different options protocols to hedge yourself. 
Um, what is the status on that? Do you guys plan to use stuff like, I know, I remember you saying like Panoptic and what else? There's Gamma Swap out there. We had them on a while ago. Um, like, what are your thoughts on options and, you know, how it complements Arrakis? Risk management. Yeah. So for today, actually, what we utilize a lot just to say, how do we do it today? We already talked a bunch, but one major thing is actually this sidelining of assets, right? So it's very capital. Yeah. It's very capital inefficient, but it's very useful to make sure you don't overexpose yourself to a highly volatile market. Mm -hmm. The name of the so, game is survive. Yeah. So this is very, very helpful already and was kind of the big leap. The major change between Arrakis V1 and V2 is that you could sideline some assets and we utilize this all the time to manage our risk. Um, Doing nothing is a trade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are all these tools. And it, by the way, if you go to centralized market makers and centralized market makers, how do they manage their risk? Well, they're allowed to do whatever they want in these central limit order books, right? Way, way more constraint. You give them the money, you say, please do something good, I hope. Please. <laughs> please. And what they actually often do is literally nothing because they manage their risk by placing a lot of orders in the book and withdrawing those orders before anybody, whenever a taker comes to take. So they don't know what to do with these assets. And so they literally sideline all of them. So like sidelining assets is definitely a majorly important thing to do. And basically getting out of the market sometimes is what's necessary, essentially, these kinds of things show. I still think that's egregious mismanagement from the market maker's perspective since their mandate is to help make your market liquid and they're just pretending. Yeah. Um, but yes. And honestly, that's what goes back to, as you said, what, what Arrakis is about in the end. It's about this transparent, decentralized, permissionless market maker where you can see the assets are being managed. With a traditional market maker, you just give it to them, pray for the best. You don't even know if they're trading against you or not, but with Arrakis, if they give it to Palm or you know someone of their choice using Arrakis V2, it's all transparent, and that's the beauty of this per se. Yeah, yeah, you can go to a dashboard, you see exactly how much volume it's facilitated. Like, hopefully you have this with your centralized market maker, but only if you actually control the centralized exchange, right? Because they only have the, the who, who is actually doing what with it, which order. So if you don't control the centralized exchange, you're totally flying blind with Arrakis. And because again, blockchains in general for the win, right? Have this really intense transparency. So you can see every trade, exactly how much they've facilitated, where all of their liquidity was at any given time. And most importantly, if you don't like it, remove your liquidity in it at a dime, right? And take all your money back without any kinds of legal agreements or whatever, as opposed to handing the money over to the market maker and hoping, you know, that that this borrow relationship it stays the way you want, but it's fully custodial in that. Yeah. Okay. And quick question. Yeah, go ahead, Kent. Yeah. Um I mean two questions. The first one is quick one. Um are the parameters on chain or rather are the parameters easily accessible by anybody to come and see? for private vaults? Currently, they are. So currently, they're entirely um, public and they are on-chain. So you can see the exact nice. parameters to each, each Palm vault. I think uh, eventually, potentially, they can still be on-chain, but sort of, uh, you know, with a private communication line to the manager mm -hmm. so that, you know, so. they can decrypt what's in there so that you can keep the, you know, not leak the details of your strategy. Um, but for now, the, the, that layer isn't even there. Um, Got it. And 
It's important though to say, I think, which is, yeah, while, while you can pass that to the manager on chain, you can set it on chain, it's still sort of uh, in the current version, the manager, you trust the manager to actually use those exact parameters. So like uh, you maybe in some future world, I would love where you could make sure on chain that they're running exactly the strategy as defined in the, uh, in the on chain data there. But, um, but for now this isn't really feasible. And so, so you basically make sure that you're hoping that what the manager is doing in the background, the agreement is taking those strategy parameters per vault and using exactly those to, to generate the execution for any future result. Got it. And then for the, the second question, I wanted to double click into is you said that you guys have 12 uh, other projects or DAOs that you guys are working with already. Like, are they mainly like new projects yet to launch a token or do they currently already have their token up and running? So, yeah, all of so these, yeah, you, you, yeah, the, yeah all, all of the ones have uh, tokens running already. We are, we have been contacted by quite a few protocols that are interested in kind of launching their token with mm -hmm. Palm, um, but nothing that has happened just yet. Um, but I think it, 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 it's something that we're looking into and we think is really, really interesting, right? Right. Um, because, I mean, arguably liquidity straight out of the bat is probably one of the most important parts of a successful token launch, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's why I kind of wanted to bring that up. And since backtesting is such a critical element to setting the parameters, how do you backtest a token that's not in existence yet? Uh -huh. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> we oh. do have this problem a lot. We have it a lot. And um, because even if it exists, sometimes it exists, but there hasn't really been a lot of trading action yet. Right. Mm -hmm. Very young. Um, so you can utilize other markets for now. It's like, you know, you say, hey, this could kind of look like this market. Um, right. And this one has data. But eventually, right, you don't want to, eventually, you really want to move to a more sophisticated testing, uh, back testing environment, which is where you model agents in the market to generate the, the future data so that you're also not just limited to what has actually occurred in real life. You could model these agents based on this past, right? But mm -hmm, then these mm -hmm. agents could just keep producing new data based on, right? Uh, so, like, these kinds of simulations are much better than just, um, you know, uh, more sophisticated to actually build. Right. Mm -hmm. Is part of your onboarding with these 12 projects, like, hey, let us also do some backtesting for you and set you up with yes. the parameters. Wow, that white glove deluxe yeah, so, service. <laughs> yeah, it's it's full service. Full, full service. service. No, <laughs> Squirrels, the, the, pro, full service. the process is absolutely, I'm all about the full service. Um, in regards you heard to it here first, folks. Um, full, full service squirrel. <laughs> um, no, but the, the process is exactly that. Like the process is, understanding what the protocol wants, right? Like sometimes also protocols want to actually like diversify their treasury through this, right? Um, some protocols want just purely deep liquidity and they don't really care about losing some funds or anything like that, right? Um, and so based on that, we obviously then run backtesting uh, simulations and with various different parameters. And then protocols can see 
okay, how does the LP do versus holding those tokens, right? So if they provided 90-10, if they would have just held those 90-10 tokens, what would that have looked like in comparison mm-hmm. to the LP? Um, it'll show you how many rebalances you had to, you you did or would have done, right? Meaning gas costs. And then also um, shows you how quickly you're kind of moving from 90-10 to 50-50, for example. Um, plus also shows you what the price impact would have been if Palm would have been running. Yeah, the now, intention really just, matters. Qu- yeah, just quick caveat, of course. Again, we, we spoke about this before, but backtesting is not like... History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of history, I want to go into a little bit of the history of Frax and Arrakis and Giuni because one of the first Giuni pools was, in fact, Frax die. Because uh, I was the one that actually got that up. I'm going to do a humble brag a little bit. <laughs> That's when I was <laughs> in my in the back. Yeah. Protocol politician phase, getting Giuni <laughs> all across the board. And uh, yeah, we got it in there. Um, and I'm, I'm like, I'm wondering like, what else could like Frax and Arrakis do together? Cause obviously, you know, Frax is very deeply involved and invested in the curve ecosystem. But like one comment that we always get is like how Frax can diversify. Maybe there could be an AMO that runs on Arrakis V2. Maybe there, you know, maybe we can have some stable pairs on using Arrakis V2 as well. I, I mean, have you guys like, I mean, thought about this and Kit, I would like to get your thoughts on this as well. Like, where could you see you guys like helping? Like, where could you see like a partnership with Frax happen? Because Frax is a liquidity machine and you guys are like liquidity protocol. So it seems like it could be a very good match. I want to say one thing right away, which is, I mean, we already, we are, it's interesting that, yeah, that thing was launched on Frax die long time Mm -hmm. ago, but I just checked to remind myself and there's still like three million dollars in there, so it's still it's running. It's locked liquidity, baby. There's locked liquidity, and people right. are like, "We're gonna get it up it's because you got that locked stuff with the frack." Exactly. Because I was wondering, yeah. it's not something, but it must then still be incentivized. It's just one. Yeah, it's it's it is incentivized, not as much as it once was, yeah. but yeah, it still is incentivized slightly. Honestly, if somebody just like comes into like hidden hand into like a vote incentive market and puts a a fat vote incentive there. Uh, I like imagine it really doesn't take that much to like get up that uh, AP APR there, but um, yeah. yeah, like it's really funny. Actually, maybe not funny for people like locked in the vault, but it's really interesting. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. Like there is like, so we have this thing in the Frax community with like rage quits, and people are like proposing to you know, can I like rage quit out of my locked position? Whether it's bec- like a lot of times it might be like a bug in it or like something happened, like the protocol shuts down this and that, and so like this has been a trend and kind of in, you know, a conversation within the fractional community of rage quits and people like talk about when can we rage quit the G uni pool? I was like, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing to rage quit. The point of the point of lock liquidity. So there's like locked frax liquidity. So that's, that's healthy for the protocol. And you made that decision. You got to like live with it. Sorry. Indrid, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's cool. It's already there. It still lives maybe in some zombie mode and everyone wants to raid. Uh, I don't know. Not everyone. Yeah. <laughs> but Maybe but, some people uh, like, earned, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's just interesting that it keeps these DeFi things, right? They keep trucking always. They have this long life, even if maybe it mm-hmm. was much 
more utilized a year ago, there's still some activity there. Um, uh, but yeah, and I mean, I mean, the trading volumes there, right? Like, I just, I mean, I probably should have done this before the. Wait, what's the volume on? Uh, pod, the, the, yeah, the Frax die uh, Uniswap P3 pool. So I, I think so. I'm not looking at that one, but right, like if you look at the the highest volume, it's obviously Curve with four million twenty four mm -hmm. hour volume. Then it's Frax Swap with two point seven, and then after that is Uni with one point nine million. So it's half the Curve volume. Mm -hmm. with probably a fraction of the liquidity in there i would assume um best price execution yeah. maybe capital efficiency you know what's funny is like we started this pod by saying you know time matters length of time matters well you're <laughs> locked baby <laughs> it's permanent time <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny it's so interesting that um like the beginnings of g uni like their bread and butter was those fixed stable swap positions because that's what made sense and that and people didn't really have the knowledge as they about uniswap v3 as they do now to do anything else in a consistent sustainable effective manner and you know whether it's like frax die or the very famous usdc die pool um that you know maker used for a bit mm -hmm. um that was like really the bread and really the bread and butter and like i think it what it comes down to is like uniswap v3 is just like you said squirrels you know for traders it's like you've got the best price you go there um but with like something like curve it's more of it it has a different priority i feel like like i said with like pricing power like you don't you don't really need it until you really do like what we saw happen this weekend with the dpeg like everybody was going to curve for the price and you know we saw that with for example um there's recently like bunny came into the convert into the chat and they offered <laughs> this was a little bit of a conversation in our uh, Telegram with Bunny uh, and showing like, hey, like, look at all the volume we're getting through through our like fixed range. And it was like a very simple fixed range. It was basically G Uni V1, uh, but mm -hmm. they it was just them bragging about it. And um, then when the defect happened because it was a fixed range, you know, there's no way to capture that fee <laughs> or volume. Yeah, no, exactly. So this is totally true. I think let's go back to the curve. Uniswap thing for just a Let's second. Go back. Two, two very important things. One, the tokenomics is another layer. So, oh yeah. So oh, tokenomics fair. might be really cool, and that you could have sort of a different composition of the whole ecosystem because of this. But those are mm -hmm. completely plug and play. You could put the curve tokenomics on top of Uniswap. You could take mm -hmm. the curve tokenomics off of Curve, and you still have two dexes there and how they work. So like. I think looking on those two layers is very different, very important to like separate them yeah. out. Of course, they create a whole and they create something we know as sort of like the ecosystem of that protocol. But also you can pull off the tokenomics and just look at the DEXs. And I feel pretty confident personally, if you do a pure DEX analysis, which isn't the only thing, right? That there you can just show that you just have extra degrees of freedom with Uniswap. Anything you can do with a curve pool, you could technically do it on top of uni v3 by placing a bunch of different liquidity so and you could do a whole other class of things that could never be done on curve so i mean what is superior they're different designs but like there's there's some real fundamental differences in those designs and i see some real value in the swaps design there so yeah 
that's the main thing I think because yes, the tokenomics do create a different right. They basically focused on how this idle liquidity because they're working all over always the full price range in some manner, and thus having idle liquidity on many different prices. The idea is how to make sure there's the right tokenomics and basically bribing mechanisms or liquidity mining type mechanisms to make sure that there's always liquidity in there. And, and these are quite interesting and there might be, there are good sides and bad sides, but yeah, I think it's a layer entirely on top and you could put it on top of Uniswap too. So yeah, like, yeah. And I, I think like just to add some spice, not the, Spice. spice token. We're talking about spice. This, but yeah. oh, okay. Just to just to add some spice to to all of this, like let's not forget that during the last weekend of this USD DPEG, USDC DPEG, UniV3 saw volumes of thirteen billion, twenty four hour volumes of thirteen billion dollars, right? And the TVL is what around like across the chains, it's around like. 3.5 3.8 billion and so for that amount of money to be flown through 3 billion like that is unreal it's insane right? um yeah numbers that don't is lie unreal. people lie numbers like, don't exactly exactly well lie. toxic order flow numbers sometimes lie <laughs> toxic, i mean depends <laughs> how you frame it it's healthy flow yeah, exactly. we're all about reframing <laughs> yeah. volumes by themselves in aggregate don't lie and univ3 yeah. is doing something right but it's yeah. true that these fixed range stable coin positions yeah for the moments when the stable coins depeg i i would tell you trade on curve don't sure. trade where, where you can only yeah. get one where you can one. get the best price execution at that moment as squirrel yeah. will say and and again i think that is where like do you as an lpr want to LP USDC at 88 cents? Probably not. So that's why I'm not yeah, doing it on Uniswap. Range, range right? order right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, right. So and like on curve, you have to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. On curve, you have to. You to be in this position that you probably don't want. And then also maybe on top has cool mechanisms to try to entice you with bribes and tokens mm -hmm. and other stuff. Yeah. But so, yeah. So, yeah. You guys, yeah. I, I really want to double click on this one because, dude, I'm. I just want to say I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation. Like, I, I love this. I, I hope you guys <laughs> are too. Uh, Absolutely. I, I want to talk about the the curve thing because we saw the three pool just got smashed to smithereens. Yeah, that's so right. It was, it, it, was, it was all gone. Tether and, the risk free yeah, like asset. Two, yeah. There was like yeah. two percent USDT in there left. Yeah, <laughs> it was like two dollars against like three hundred million. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but so, like in that situation, I guess um, if it were any other governance, a uh, DAO governance token, you you want to stand in there to backstop every single liquidity because that is your governance token. But how does one balance between the risk of getting completely flushed out, like you know USDT did, versus providing? liquidity when there is volatility where liquidity is needed the most right yeah i would say that's an amazing question mainly and we're asking this question a lot um 
And it's this question also, it intersects with what Squirrel was saying earlier about when, when we did have this volatility and it jumped on one side, but mm -hmm. not the other, right, right, and how right. you need to be careful, right? So there's this trade-off. The volatility is also when all the fees, right? The fees are always on these days because some yes, days right. Uniswap is real low. Even Uniswap, not a lot of volume right. on mm -hmm. the low days, but the big days are huge. So you don't want to miss out on those days. But you st even on that day, you have to be thinking about what is the risk associated with capturing these fees. And the risk increases mm. when these fees increase at the same time. So yeah. the best yeah, and when stablecoins are pegged and then and the volume increases, that's awesome. But like that's not always. And I think fun. this is like exactly this what Cassandra just mentioned is why I and I think everyone in Rockus is just so bullish on the aspect of being able to run different strategies because a one size fits all does not exist for a market in traditional finance you have hfts right who are killing it on volatile days right and then you have more of the like longer time frame as in like the five minute or the 10 minute uh hedge fund traders right that are doing better on other days. And this is how markets go. And this is why I think the constant function market maker, it's a great way for like these long tail assets, right? Like if you look mm -hmm. at order books and if you look at uh, like penny stocks in the trad spy world, these things like you want to buy a hundred bucks for them. And I mean, you can't, right? It's just ridiculous. And so to kickstart a market, a constant function market maker is fantastic, right? Because you don't know what the value of this thing really should be, right? And as a protocol, you don't have enough funds to actually hire a proper market maker, or you don't actually have enough trading volume that it's worth having an active market maker. And so for these situations, the CFM, the constant function market maker is a huge innovation. But I think what we need to realize and what a lot of these threaders need to kind of accept is that different situations need require different types of market makers. And that's why active market makers will win. And that's why also this concentrated liquidity aspect most likely will facilitate the majority of the volume in the long run. Mm. Well said. Uh, I want, we're nearing the end of this, but I have one more question, and I feel like people would like be mad at me if I didn't ask this. But you mentioned the spice token earlier, Squirrel. When spice? Spice. When spice? spice. And do when you have spice. like any like alpha and like the tokenomics or what it would look like? So, when spice? Sometimes in twenty twenty three. So it's now March. So it's not January or February twenty twenty three. Mm -hmm. um it could be march 2023 we don't know um no but it won't be um tokenomics wise like this is all stuff that we're we're figuring out now um i think like what we are really happy about since january since launching v2 and palm is that they're slowly or we're pretty confident that there is product market fit meaning that there is a potential to be ready for a token as well, but we don't want to 
um, kind of just push out a token, right? Yeah. That, that is just there. Um, I think those times are over. Um, those times were good times back in the day. But nowadays, I think you need to like much more clearly think about like how yeah. you actually launch a token, what actually is the token and so it's forth. Like, what action will the SPICE token incentivize? What do you want the SPICE token to incentivize? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think we're still like long run as well. We want to dive in too, too easily into that it should incentivize X, right? Because you only get like a we get one shot, <laughs> one shot, one shot deal when it's starting. And of course, yeah. we've seen we always say this with tokens, but you still see tokens trying their best to pivot all the time. But it's hard. Time. It's very very hard because yeah. once you set something in motion, yeah, like the whole way that blockchain tokens and the way the smart contracts work is, it's going to be a lot of a lot of dead weight trying to yeah. change around the whole model, both in terms of, you know, getting consensus with whatever sort of really decentralized community you now have of all these token holders and, and you know, figuring out the technical process of changing around yeah. any, any methods. Yeah, and also, also the distribution, right? Like, mm. I mean, you saw it today with the Arby token, right? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone was Sybil attacking Ar Arbitrum to get the airdrop. And now they managed to relatively yeah. reduce the civil attacks. And now everyone's angry that all of the civil attacks didn't work. And that no one. <laughs> what do you mean I didn't get an airdrop? <laughs> exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. And so, like, yeah, that's why I distribution, find, like, yeah, all of this. Yeah. I like, that's why I find, like, like, trying to, like, game an airdrop is so pointless because you put in this effort and then you get disappointed if it doesn't work there. It's, like, much better where it's, like, a nice surprise. Like, oh, look, like, I used this thing once and I got how much? Like, that's way yeah, better. Yeah. That's like what an airdrop should be, like the Uniswap airdrop or the ribbon airdrop. That was my favorite one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think yeah. one thing that... Um... Go ahead, Cassandra. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's this funny story um, with the ribbon okay. airdrop. Uh, so I was using Gelato Funds just to test products. Uh, and one of them was just ribbon. I, I don't know. I put like a little bit in and out just like to see like, oh, like what automation could ribbon use? And then I got the ribbon airdrop. It was 60K. It was 60K. Jesus. Yeah. We ended up throwing an wow. ice cream party in Lisbon. <laughs> and, uh, but only a little bit. Then we took like the rest of the funds. And I don't know. What I was like, damn, 60K ice creams. I was like, that's sad. Yeah, did no, you no, feed geez. all of Lisboa? Yeah, I did. I did. But, what, 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 kind of a, what kind of gelato was this? This was <laughs> golden yeah, gelato or something. Yeah. Yes. Gold, gold flakes. But yeah. you know what, like we, we talk about airdrops, but I feel like Arrakis or, or Palm specifically is actually really useful for mm -hmm. facilitating an early liquidity for these airdrops, right? And let's be frank, yeah. we all know what this airdrop chart is going to look like. We know like it, airdrop <laughs> charts look all the same all the time. So your back yeah. testing, there's plenty of data for your back testing. It almost is yeah. like if you're gonna air like it should be almost like a package, right? Hey, you should do the yeah. Arbitrum style filtering for snapshot, which was over nine months across so many different things. Great. Mm -hmm. Then post airdrop, you should use the Arrakis package to protect yourself. And this is how your DAO yeah. can effectively get some of these airdrop tokens back. Yeah, right. I want to. Yeah, I want. It thing. sounds like we've got a preacher here, Cassandra. Yeah. Maybe we should hire. This guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. No, he's <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah. No, I want to say one more thing. Like when it comes to like incentives and tokens, like 
that's honestly what I love about CRV. Like love it or hate it, like the goal of CRV is to incentivize liquidity. And they've done that like flawlessly. Like they have like they are the liquidity black hole of stable coins and like love it or hate it. Like there if Uniswap V3s, you know, their priority is like, okay, what's the best trade execution? Curves, you know, priority is like how can we get the most liquidity in one place? And I think this is actually where they complement each other, to be honest. They have certainly innovated on this tokenomics stuff. And it's real innovation that has obviously been useful. Again, numbers don't lie. You see it getting adopted everywhere. That's not for no reason. Um, mm-hmm. I think there are still some question marks about exactly how sustainable these yeah. uh, games can be. But that's okay. Yeah. There's also real innovation there for sure. Mm-hmm. And way, way ahead of like, yeah. again, if you look at Uni token and whatever they're doing on the tokenomics side, Nothing, right? Okay, yeah. nothing. I, th- I think it's like more stable coins come online, whether it's, you know, ETH peg stable coins with the LSDs or more dollar peg stable coins with, um, you know, fingers crossed, like a framework passing in the US and beyond in tw- early 2024 that allows for this stable coin renaissance of source. You know, these stable coins need to peg to something and they got to go somewhere. So Curve is going to be the place for that. So. Yes, I agree with you. Like, in order for this to be sustainable, it needs to like to have a path of growth. But I do see that path of growth ahead, and that's what makes me so excited about Curve and so excited about Frax being like, you know, the ultimate power user of it all. Yeah, I think it's also like pretty important that uh, I think what we've seen, and not to dive in too deep, but I think we've seen a lot of protocols that were just like. Oh, VE, like, we gotta <laughs> have it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but there's and, no. Like, I think it's well, very. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's very dangerous to just do that, right? And mm-hmm. like, I think the negatives, in my opinion, um, and you guys won't like this, but in the end, like VE right now is creating creating cartelization, and Frax is a cartel of curve, right? And I think the whole aspect of balancer. Um, once they launched their VE, a lot of protocols started bouncing off of Curve over to Balancer because they were like, oh, we're going to start taking part in this war and we're going to be the cartel, cartel of Balancer, yeah. right? And then the next thing is going to launch. And that, you know, and, and mm-hmm. so I think that is like, this is where the part is of like, I think you need to sit down, think critically and just like, what actually makes sense for you and don't just like take over what's worked for curve because I mean, curve in general is like an insane project, right? Like Michael (laughs) is, Michael is a God of DeFi. Right. (laughs) And so I think like it just because of, they didn't only succeed because of VE. Right. Um, and so I think that is the really important part. And I think a lot of people get blinded by that. Yeah. I, yeah, there's no denying it that uh but with you can't just copy something and stop and expect the best and yes in what happens in like these ve systems is this cartelization but this is what happens in every system is this just like how is is like how like the nature of the universe is like oh like when things get big enough you kind of get these like big entities like whether it's on chain or off chain with media companies or whether it's with you know oil companies or this and that it just seems like as things scale you know, things kind of have a way of quote unquote centralizing into like a few different entities to organize things. And then it's just this constant ebb and flow of like 
centralizing and disruption and decentralized and such. And it's just like a matter of like, what's the most efficient and what's like best for you. That's a little mm-hmm. rant at the end. Um, yeah, so, yeah, totally. Yeah. I think, or, I think the word cartel is thrown around often to sound really bad, but yeah. as you say, it's, yeah. it's all around us in DeFi exactly. looking yeah. at think, token think, holdings yeah. and any tokens. I think like you just, you know, the ones that are win will be enlightened cartels and realize that like, Hey, let's not be extractive in the future. Destructive, destructive, extractive. Like how can we be constructive and build and have people build with us? Like, yeah, we might be like the biggest ones on top, but like if people can't get a piece of our pie and we just block them out, like they're just going to go and try to, you know, it's like, how can you like incorporate others into your empire of sorts? Your MLM. For VE Spice, is it going to be a four-week or a four-year lock? You know? yeah. Oh, no, it's going to be a six-month lock. Six it's going to be a 1,000-year lock. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be for my like, great-great-grandkids that are going to be exactly. like, generational wealth. wealth. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. On, on that note, let's, let's end it there. Um, this has been a really fun podcast. This has been a marathon, um, you know, and I've enjoyed every second, you know, jogging with you guys alongside, uh, let's do the, um, let's do the fire uh, side, uh, the fire, the fire. Yeah. The lightning rounds. Let's do the lightning round. (laughs) Enter the Thunderdome. So at the end of these things, we'd like to just ask you a quick series of questions just to get, you know, you more as the, the human, the man behind the builder. So let's let's start with Squirrel here. And what was your virgin crypto experience? And sexes don't count. Virgin crypto experience. When did you first touch the chain? First touch the chain. The first ever touch with actually with something called Shadow Cash. Shadow Cash. Don't know don't know if you guys know about Shadow Cash. No. No. Shadow Tell Cash. Tell us about Shadow. Shadow Cash is still around um but now they're called particle i think they raised an ico in like 2016 with like a thousand five hundred btc or something and they're just like still building no one uses their product um but they were basically doing like a decentralized uh market basically um privacy centric market um that's how i touched the chain that was the first interaction. Okay, Cassandra, you, please, sir. First chain interaction. Yeah, really good question. I actually think, um, yeah, I acquired some Bitcoin because I was doing some uh, writing some bots that played poker online, um, all for truly, actually, for like educational benefit. They were not. I wasn't like making cash or anything just wanted to see how they would work but i had to do it um on these like sketchier bitcoins uh poker sites and mm-hmm. this was the first interaction with bitcoin that sent me down the rabbit hole or around the same time 2016 2017 okay all right so follow up to that uh let's start with cassandra at this time what is your favorite off-chain touch grass activity what are some of your hobbies and interests Ah, yeah. Well, so I had a total previous life in in performance and theater as like a director and choreographer. So I'd say all of that. I'd say, yeah. Hit your face. 
<laughs> I wasn't um, expecting um, that, you know. Postmodern yeah, man. I, Go with postmodern man. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, squirrel. I'm speechless, but you next, yeah, sir. Yeah, I'm not good. I can't trump that. Um, I feel like I can't really say anything. Um, I, I'm one of the boring guys. Like, I just like to ski... I like to play football, play ice hockey. That's that's kind of my jam. I'm not really uh, really nice. on the cool side with performance nice. art and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nice. I, I, I didn't know American football was so big there. I'm yeah. scared. Yo, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> um, one sec. Sam, could you mute your mic? Yeah. Okay. There we go. Um, okay. Next question. Um, Cassandra, what is some advice you would give to your younger self? Oh, advice I would give. Yeah, it's going to be weird. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. It's tough. To just, I think, I, I actually feel like I did a nice time when I was young, allowing myself to really explore very freely. I was mm-hmm. deep in the in the theater and so on, uh, and many other varying interests before I even got anywhere near crypto or even computers. Um, but I would still say something like that, even more that, like just um, being young is about, you know, going and probing in all different directions and just don't worry about what thing will be permanent. Mm. Squirrel, see you. I'd, I'd say around this, like, I, I, I'd say you live by it is what it is. It like, is what it is. Just it is what it is, you know, like do whatever you want, experiment with, with whatever interests you and like somehow the path will will go somewhere and that's where you'll end up. That was literally the the slogan of the gym I went to in my hometown, middle school and high school. It was Karini's House of Iron. It is what it is. And it was just like, just straight up, like barbells, like nothing fancy, barbells, dumbbells. There are no machines. It was like the opposite of Equinox. It is what it is. It is what it is. And it worked. Yeah. And, and Squirrel, that was almost the perfect segue into my final and closing question is on this separate alternative path, if you weren't working in crypto and not in finance, what or tech, what would you be doing right now with your professional career? Ooh. Honestly, I th- I'd love to be a cook, a professional cook. A chef. A chef. Chopping it up. Absolutely. Okay. Stirring it. <laughs> okay, nice. Maybe you can't you, a line cook, too. You have to be a chef. Line cook. That's true. Like hardcore guys. How about you, Cassandra? Yeah, good question. Yeah, I mean so many other things i do want to do um, <laughs> so lots of different stuff i like i got here uh, into crypto on a tangent and finance um so yeah i'd say the most likely thing that i probably w- feel like i were would have been ended up in and may still end up in is academia i'm just mm. that kind of person i but, could see that uh but professor yeah, Cassandra.eth uh, PhD. <laughs> Do- Dr. Nice. Cassandra. Imagine walking Cassandra.phd. 
you're walking into class and it's like, hey, everyone, I am Cassandra.eth. I will be your liquidity teacher yeah. today. <laughs> um, but yeah. That sounds like straight out of Hogwarts or Hogwarts. something. Hogwarts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, guys, thank you so much. And thank you for the socks. I've been the socks have been real comfortable this interview. The Iraqi socks. Hey, yeah. no, actually, that <laughs> that's probably what I that's probably what I should have uh, should have said in terms of if I wasn't in crypto or in tech, what I should do is probably like a clothing line or something. Make socks. Yeah. I feel like that would be a make socks exactly. Yeah, yeah. Socks are, the, you know, socks are just the best. It's just like they hug you your know, feet. They're love. so comfy. <laughs> I actually prepared a list of questions before this, and on that list of questions, one of those were, "Are there still socks available?" Because I missed them at Eat Denver. So, yeah, I, I literally came, socks are yeah, yeah. socks yeah. are out, man. I but, got the last pair. But... I literally came over to those. I was like, "Wait, <laughs> yeah. save me one!" And I literally like right before I left, I'm like, "God, thank you." Right before my flight, Dave managed to grab the last ones. Yeah, wow. Yeah, but um, if you're at EFCC then there will be ECC specific Arrakis socks. Ooh. So maybe you got to go to ECC if you're not planning. Yeah. Exactly. You I'll be there. I'll be there. Or you get Dave to, to snag you one. I got you, yeah. kid. Yeah, thank you. I always figured, oh, I get it now because there are Eunice socks. Now there are Arrakis socks. Is that is that the play? <laughs> I don't know. Well, so maybe, maybe there's going to be Arrakis boxers actually at ECC as well. I haven't decided yet, but the I feel spice. like I, I, the, the spice. spice, exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. I can exactly. smell the spice. The spice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The uh. spice requires some protection. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, okay, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up before we say yeah. something even more stupid. Thanks. Exactly. Yeah. Cassandra, thank Squirrel, you. thank you for coming. We'll see you on Arrakis. We'll see you next time at Flywheel. Peace. Thanks a lot for having us. Peace. Peace. Thank you, everybody, for watching this edition of Flywheel with Arrakis. Cassandra, Squirrel, the marathon has been completed. Kit, final thoughts? Uh, there are none. Just go into there. our post game yeah. and listen to that. Cut, go down below, post game down below. Our beautiful, intelligent Producer Sam will be there hosting, so make sure you go down, subscribe, check out what's going on there. Uh, make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube. Hit that belt button for all the latest updates. Comment, let us know what you think. Hit that like button there too. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at FlywheelDefi. Make sure you follow us on Telegram. Keeping track of the conversation there at FlywheelDefi. You can follow me on Twitter at DefiDave22. Follow me at 0 capital underscore K. And go down to the post game. Peace. Go, 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 go. Everything said on this episode is not financial or tax advice. This channel is strictly for educational purposes and is not an investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any assets or to make any financial decisions. This video is not tax advice whatsoever. Please talk to your accountant and do your own research.